I, uh, I'm thankful that we get to be back here together in person. And for those of you who are gathered online, I've been reminded this week by a quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer said, a frightened world needs a fearless church. It's been a strange week and I've seen a lot of your texts and emails. I've seen a lot of your social media postings. And I have been prompted to think about what does it mean? What does it look like? What does it sound like? How does it read when the church is the bride and the body of Christ, when she is actually fearless? These are strange days in which we now live, are they not? We're in a pandemic, oh, by the way, in the middle of one of the craziest political seasons I can ever remember. It's, it's sort of a perfect storm of all of these things building. There's all this tension, all this animosity that is now exploding all over our nation. There's violence, human against human. And incidentally, the thing that stirs the heart of God to wrath is human violence. See also Genesis 6 and the book of Revelation. So all of these things that are happening causes a bunch of God-fearing, church-attending, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving, casserole-baking church people to say, what in the world is going on? What does Scripture say? How should the church respond? What am I to do as a Christian? More importantly, how long is this all going to last? And what is the solution? So again, what does Scripture say? What does the church do? And what is a Christian's response in the midst of all of this mess? what I want to talk about this morning, to really be able to understand and answer that question in a way that's actually transformative and helpful, we need to really understand what a Christian actually is. So just stick with me for a moment. If we're all completely honest and transparent, most of us are susceptible to some preconditioned idea of what a Christian is. It takes all different sorts of shapes and sizes. Many of us, perhaps, have seen the ugliness perpetuated by alleged Christians under the banner of Christendom, where they've done really bad, bad, bad moral societal ills as if to say this is what Christians do. We've all seen that, and we also have a fear of being lumped in with those kinds of stereotypes that we don't respect or appreciate. We've observed the ignorance and insensitivity of people who call themselves Christians when in fact oftentimes those behaviors are in no way the way the Lord Jesus would himself behave. Maybe alternatively some of us have even come to church trying to fit into some sort of cultural churchianity and we're just worn down from all the charade. Well first and foremost here's what we have to understand. A Christian, this is going to blow your minds, is a human being. It's true. A Christian is a human being. And that means that a Christian, he or she, comes into this world with a fallen and a corrupt nature. Every single person that is a Christian still bears this corrupted and fallen and self-centered nature. All of us do. That ultimately manifests itself like this. Every single human being is desperate for glory any way they can get it. Now, it might be good for you and I to think on that for just a moment. Every single human being ever is somehow turned in on himself or herself, desperately seeking glory. So then, how does the gospel address this fundamental human flaw? Well, our answer for the morning 
comes from this passage. It's also the answer for the world, and it's our big idea. It goes like this. A Christian is a glory-hungry human granted the fullness of the glory of God. The fundamental need of every single human being that's ever existed, there's seven and a half billion people alive right now. We think there's been about eight billion people alive previously all throughout all of human history. So about half the people that will have ever lived are alive right now. And every single one of them have the same problem. They're desperately seeking glory one way or another. But a Christian is one who is glory hungry, but has been graciously granted the full glory of God. Now, for those of you who have been around for a number of weeks and months, you will know that we have been in the book of Esther uh, for a number of weeks now. And this morning, we were to have been in the book of Esther chapter 5. And certainly there are some uh, ethnic and racial tensions happening in the book of Esther where the bad guy, the antagonist, his name is Haman, you're supposed to hiss, whose name is, uh, sounds a whole lot in Hebrew like hatred, has got a real big problem with the Jewish people and the story of God's faithfulness to those Jewish people even though they're not seeking after God. Well, this morning I want you to know we're going to take a slightly different tack. I will tell you that last Sunday I said, Lord willing, we'll be in Esther chapter 5 on this Sunday. But Thursday night, it was made completely apparent to me that the Lord was not willing. As I laid awake on Thursday evening, unable to sleep, very troubled, uh, ill at ease, not resting, and so my only recourse was to pray and to pray and to pray. And the Lord brought a passage to me that brought me peace. And I would say to you, that does not happen very often, but there was no way I was going to rest until I prayed through this passage of Scripture. And so to spend the rest of our time together this morning, I'm going to ask Sally Wade if she would read our passage. Sally Wade is going to read our passage for the morning. It's really good to be here together, isn't it? This is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Amen. Amen. That's reading God's word like you've heard it before. Thank you, Sally. I want to walk through this passage as efficiently as I can, but I want to say this also as non-arrogantly as I possibly can. I believe we have the answer. No matter what you're seeing on social media, on the news, for those of you who still actually know what a newspaper is, for all the things that are going on, I believe we have the answer. This is such good news. I'm going to walk through Philippians chapter 2 now, beginning in verse 1. So Paul writes to this church in Philippi, if there is any encouragement, he assumes that there must be. Now, you have to understand that Paul's writing to a group of people in a very tumultuous time and place. Incidentally, this is incredibly prescient for us. This is the very first church in Western civilization. The church at Philippi is the first church in Europe. You might remember this is one of those churches that was created accidentally on the backswing. Paul was trying to go northeast in what is today Turkey, but God takes him to Europe, and he plants unintentionally, <laughs> at least it wasn't Paul's intent, it was God's intent, he plants first Philippi. And they immediately begin to experience strife. In fact, the entire letter to the church of Philippians culminates with Paul calling out two women by name because they just can't seem to get along. Ugh. So Paul's not unfamiliar with tension and strife and animosity. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there must be any comfort from love, in Corinthians, God is called the God of all comfort. So he cannot help but comfort. It's who he is. It's what he does. He gives comfort. So we are to cognitively be reminded of that. Oh, yes, I am feeling discomforted, but God is the God of all comfort. <sighs> Any comfort from love. That's agape, where God wants our good above even what we want for ourselves. Any participation in the Spirit. That word participation is koinonia. Some of us will think of that word as uh, fellowship. But it's more than that. It's where we get our word for coinage. It's the thing that we have in common. I love this verse for its definition of the church. The koinonia of the Spirit. The coinage, the currency, the commonality between all of us is the indwelling Spirit of God. The Shekinah glory of the God of the universe indwells every person. We would do well. I would do well to remember that when I encounter and engage you. And if I engage someone who is not indwelled by God's Spirit, I should be horrified at the vacuum and the void and pray that God would do for them what he has done for me and that he would move into that space and bring life where there has been death, bring light where there has been darkness. That's our koinonia, our coinage, our commonality, and our currency is the Holy Spirit of God. And when we think in those terms, it has a way of obliterating everything else on the surface, or at least it should. Any affection and sympathy. I could spend hours on this. I won't. Just this intentional, volitional, well-reasoned concern, one for the other. If that's been there, it should still be there. Verse 2, complete my joy, perfect it. Bring it to full manifestation and maturity, Paul says. This is what the apostle wants for this people. This is what the pastor wants for these people. 
complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind. The word is phroneo. It has the idea of attitude, mindset, and thinking. Think the same way. Having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. I'll tell you, I've heard so many people this week saying, we have to repent of that thinking. We have to repent of that thinking. We have to stop thinking that way. Stop being bad. Just stop it. Which is really precisely no help at all. Because if I just try to stop being bad, within a matter of mm, five or six seconds, okay, two or three seconds, I'm thinking badly again. Instead, I have to focus on the thing that I am called to, that I am created for, that I am made for. Having the same mind, but not just unity for unity's sake. Oh, that'll never stand. That will never scale. The apostle continues. I want you to be in full accord and of one mind. This is beautiful. I want to remind you that the church at Philippi was started. Its narrative description is in Acts chapter 16. And it is started with the most unusual suspects. There's a wealthy fashionista named Lydia. She's from Thyatira in central Turkey. She would have looked very much to our eyes as Middle Eastern. There is a former demon-possessed slave girl, more than certainly trafficked against her will from Cyrene in North Africa. There is a retired Roman soldier, almost certainly from Rome in central Italy. Three very different races, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, and they are the three first paving stones of the foundation of the church in Philippi, which happens to be the first church in Europe and in Western civilization. <laughs> it is no accident. And unsurprisingly, they apparently begin to experience some tensions as Lydia, the wealthy fashionista, is telling the former demon-possessed slave girl, hey, don't eat that. Put something on. And the retired Roman soldier is over there watching Monday night Rome ball. And they're like, hey, we need you to engage and do something. We need you to work in children's ministry or whatever's happening in First Philippi. They're not having the same attitude. And then the core and the central aspect of the passage is in here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, and then we'll pick up speed. Because I want you to hear your world coming out of Philippians 2.3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the problem is there's just not really any great translations for this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The what, Paul says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition. But that's not even the best translation. Really, it would be do nothing from, um, do no, uh, well, there's not a word. It's erytheon. That word would best be translated as hyperfighting. Hyperfighting. Do no hyperfighting. That's what I don't want you to do, but it's coming from a thing. This is the thing that you're doing. You're hyperfighting, but it's coming out of the thing under the thing, which is empty glory. Remember, a Christian is a Glory, hungry human that has been granted the fullness of the glory of God. But when we're not living in that reality, we're glory hungry. And so we have an empty glory, something. I feel like I'm being marginalized. I feel like I have to be pushed to the center. I'm feeling small. I have to make myself big. I'm feeling forgotten. I'm feeling um, insignificant. And so I'm going to take out my aggression on somebody else. I'm feeling like someone's taking an advantage of me. I'm now going to take advantage of somebody else. That's coming from kenodoxion, 
empty glory. And so I hyper fight. I feel unlovely. I make myself feel lovely. I feel unnoticed. And so I do everything to be the center of attention. All of that hyperfighting, all of that aggression, one against another, is because the thing under the thing is my empty glory. The tragedy is when Christians begin to operate as hyperfighters because of an empty glory. Erytheon because of kenodoxion. That's the real tragedy. For the non-believing population of our planet, it's heartbreaking. We're not to judge them and condemn them and say, well, they get what they deserve. We think, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? But you, the God of all comfort and compassion, have indwelled me by your spirit, and now I am full of glory. I can lay aside all manifestations of hyper-fighting. It's going on in our world. Paul says, don't do any of these things, particularly you, church. A frightened world needs a fearless church. Do nothing. So it causes us to take a very serious inventory. How much of what I do day by day is really hyper-fighting because of an empty glory? Instead, Christian, I am to contemplate, to commemorate, to celebrate that I have been granted the fullness of the glory of God. I lack for nothing. And that frees me to love other people, other people who might not look like me, who might not live where I live, who might not vote how I vote, who might not dress how I dress, who might not even listen to the same music that I listen to. They might not even have the same Bible translation. I can still love them as well. And then verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now this gets very, very practical. Paul says, do no hyperfighting out of empty glory. And can I just, can I get a little preachy here for a moment? When Paul says, here's the answer, do no hyperfighting because of empty glory, no amount of education or government program will solve that. Oh, that it would. I would pay all kinds of tax rates if that were possible. No amount of education and government program will solve that. There has to be an internal transformation. Something from the outside has to come inside. And so one of our first application points, I'm gonna make these very quickly in line throughout the sermon. Our first application point goes like this. Entitlement is the opposite of humility. I hyperfight because I feel like I'm not getting something and I deserve it and so I hyperfight. That's because it's coming out of a self-centered, fallen, corrupt nature that says, I deserve. Entitlement is the opposite of humility. What does this world need? A whole lot more humility. And it's never going to happen by me just trying to be more humble. No, 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 no. I have to think rightly. I have to lay aside my entitlement. That is the opposite of humility. Secondly, I want you to see this here in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And of course, at the end of verse three, count others more significant than yourselves. That word count is hegomai. It's an accounting term. I deem this value. I deem this value. Count others more important than yourself. So next point of application is, it isn't what people are. It's what you count them to be. It isn't what people are, it's what you count them to be. And I want you to remember that word count. Again, it's a counting term, hegomai. It's what you count them to be. All of us, if we're transparent, candid, and honest, walk through life, and we immediately 
summarize and surmise people's worth and matter by a glance. But the gospel comes in and says, no, 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 no. You get to walk through life and you get to count people of various races, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, economic and educational backgrounds as more significant than yourself. Wow. You see, a frightened world needs a fearless church. So great that Paul tells them to do that because it's obviously not yet happening in First Philippi, so Paul gives them this instruction. Well, verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which you have to go work really hard to earn and obtain and achieve. Nope. Nope. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours already in Christ Jesus. The word is phroneo Christu. Have the attitude, the mindset, the thought life of Jesus. Have it, do it, be it, live in it, exist in it, dwell and abide in it. It's yours already. Have the attitude of Jesus. How would Jesus live his life through you if he was living his life through you? Because he is. Have this attitude, the attitude of Jesus. Well, what was the attitude of Jesus? Are we merely to repent of our prejudices, of our racism, of our... Good luck with that. Instead, we are to align our hearts and our minds with that of Jesus. This is what Paul says. Have the same attitude, the same thinking, the same mind among yourselves as a plurality which is yours already in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, there's that word again, count. It's hegomai. It's an accounting term. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but we do in our fallenness and our corruption. We do, but Jesus didn't. Instead, emptied himself by taking the morphe, the form of a servant, now, I want to break this down for very, very quickly. Morphe, not schema. Jesus has forever bound himself to humanity. For all eternity, Jesus will be in the morphe. He is a human, and he will never, ever lay that aside. He is so entered into the context of those whom he came to save, and we are to have that mindset. Now, that's convicting, and that's challenging. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Oh, there's that command. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became our worst nightmare. I feel insecure, I fear insignificance. They stripped him naked and hanged him on a cross, nailing him to the wood on an insignificant, hardly noticed, indescript corner outside the walls of Jerusalem. Beaten, shamed, forgotten, alone. He became my worst nightmare, your worst nightmare. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid it aside. Paul says, have that mind amongst yourselves. When you see others who you might deem less than you, I promise you and I are less than the second person of the Godhead Trinity, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for our sakes, he became sin. So that 
we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, oh, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These glory-hungry Humans have been granted the fullness of the glory of God, and Jesus is our first fruit. He is the first one to show us this is what's going to happen. No, he's not going to make us divine. No, he's not going to make us Jesus. Of course not, but ever increasingly conformed into his image. Look what Jesus did. Look what God the Father did. Be willing to lay yourself aside for the sake of someone that you might ordinarily in the flesh think is less than. You see, the frightened world needs a fearless church. Third point of application, very quickly. Failure in humility stems from a failure to trust God. I don't think Jesus flinched. Oh, I know he prayed, if there's any other way, may it be. But Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, trusted God. That God would do what that had been the plan for all eternity. He went to the cross willingly. Because he trusted God, he laid aside his glory. And when we find ourselves failing in humility, ultimately it is because we do not trust God. And so preach a little sermon to your soul. Trust God. He might take my reputation. He might take my wealth. He might take my security. He might take my health. He might even take my life. Praise God. He took Jesus's, but raised him and gave him the name above every other name. So what's going on in the world? What do these Christians, how are they to respond? What is the church supposed to do? Well, again, I want to remind you that a Christian is a glory-hungry human granted the fullness of the glory of God. And so, fourth and final point of application, it goes like this. Counting others as significant wages spiritual war against the forces of darkness. Oh, you can assemble and protest. We can and should have prayer meetings. We can have all sorts of dialogues. In fact, again, tomorrow night, 7 p.m., in this very building, we're going to have a roundtable where we discuss these things. But it starts in the transformed heart, counting others as more significant than you. It's what Paul tells us to do. To, to bestow upon them, to account them as mattering more than you. That is spiritual warfare. You are planting your foot in the ground as a beacon of light and kicking back the darkness. That's what the church is to do. Not to ratchet up rhetoric and to post social memes. <laughs> Stop it. Not to Align yourself with one particular network or another. Christians should not be on social media merely seeking affirmation. We have information. And it produces transformation. We have the glory of God freely granted by his grace. That is the answer. A frightful world needs a fearless church. So may we have this mind among ourselves.